do more. That's what Americans demand of their presidents these days. A real president, Democrat or Republican, knows how to use the office. A real president makes things happen, or so the conventional wisdom. But actually, there is another model. A president can succeed through inaction by doing as little as possible. One such president was Calvin Coolidge. From the time he took office in 1923 to the time he left in 1929, Coolidge served a philosophy that was simple and powerful. Don't do. Coolidge was our great refrainer. That's a little bit of our guest today here on the Check Your Brain podcast, courtesy of Prager U. That was Amity Schles. She is the author, the best. She is a best-selling author, and she's the best-selling author of the book Coolidge, a very comprehensive book on the life of the 30th president of the United States, Calvin Coolidge, as she calls the great refrainer. So, uh, why did I get into Coolidge? And you'll hear it through the interview, but. It's, it's one of those names that when I remember being in school and we would learn the presidents, and I think we even had a couple of quizzes where we had to name every president from George Washington to probably Bill Clinton at the time when I was in school. And, you know, so you would go through all these different presidents and 42 of them, and uh, you know, if you missed one, and Calvin Coolidge kind of was one of those that more recent presidents, and I use that relatively, that some people missed. They're like, oh, who's the oh, – let's see, there was – well, maybe, who's the guy in the bathtub? Taft. So there's Taft and Woodrow Wilson, and then there was uh, FDR. And so it was like that period where I think a lot of my classmates didn't really know much about these presidents. They would look at a Calvin Coolidge the same way they would a Millard Fillmore or a Rutherford B. Hayes. But it was a more recent example. It was, it was under 100 years ago. So why didn't we know much about Calvin Coolidge? Why didn't I learn more about Coolidge? Why did I always have to learn so much about FDR and Kennedy? Uh, Coolidge was president longer than Kennedy was, yet I have to hear so much about Kennedy. I have to hear about Reagan. I have to hear about Nixon and Watergate. So why don't we learn more about some of these figures, these presidents, that actually had a profound impact on society, whether we know about it or not, whether it's promoted or not. So that's why I had to get into who is this guy? What does he do? Why do I care? Why do some people who are kind of like-minded with me care so much about Calvin Coolidge? So I had to reach out to Amity Schles. She is uh, the chairman of the board of trustees with the Coolidge Institute. And I, 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 had to, I had to talk to her. I had to talk to her about it and got some great information. So I hope you really enjoy this podcast. It's, uh, it's informative. It's, uh, it's a heavy subject. We're not, you know, we're, not talking, we're not joking around. There's not a lot of goofs that are going on in this interview. It's a pretty straight-laced interview, and I hope you enjoy this. It is very informative. Not one of my longer podcasts, but she, you know, we, we only had a shorter time frame. But I hope you enjoy this one. Uh, it, by, and by the way, please subscribe to not only this podcast for free, whether you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, but I'm also on Patreon, too. So this podcast may have been posted about a couple of weeks or even a couple of months before you even got a chance to hear it. But if you did subscribe to my Patreon, you basically get it immediately. So for five bucks a month, subscribe to the Check Your Brain Patreon-only podcast. Because if you only subscribe on the free ones, you only get one a week. It comes out every Wednesday at 3 o'clock in the morning. You are going to get that. But you could hear this and more podcasts and early access to guests and giveaways and all the other fun stuff and different content on my Patreon at patreon.com slash 
Tony Mazur, T-O-N-Y-M-A-Z as in zebra, you are. So make sure you go check that out. Without further ado, best-selling author and, like I said, chairman of the board of trustees on the Coolidge Foundation, in the Coolidge Foundation, I should say, it's best-selling author Amity Schlaes. I'm pleased to bring in this guest here because I've been obsessed with the topic. Now, a lot of what she, her books and the topics that she has are very near and dear to me and what I like to go back in time and read about. But in, in this time of, I guess, you know, the wanting of small government and more of like laissez-faire uh, economic policy, even when I look into like the Australian or Austrian, not Australian, the Austrian uh, version of economics, I, I'm kind of pining for the days of minimalism. And a lot of us have looked back in the past to uh, the 1920s and Calvin Coolidge, the 30th president of the United States. And uh, she did a great book about him back in 2013. And she's also the uh, chairs the board of trustees over at the Coolidge Institute. And we're going to talk about Calvin Coolidge here with Amity Schles here. And Amity, thanks so much for being on here on the show. And I mean, first of all, this topic of Calvin Coolidge, especially with some of us who are leaning right and have libertarian or conservative values and paleo values as well, Calvin Coolidge is somebody that a lot of us from the Reagan administration and even in the past with the Trump administration, we kind of look to what happened to the days where the Republicans were about small government? What happened to these days? Because every time there's a Democrat president, Republicans are going out and saying, we need smaller government and we need, we need to spend less and we need to tax cuts. And then all of a sudden when they become presidents, they're also spending like drunken sailors. So uh, t talk a little bit about the uh, a lot of us that have kind of went, went back in the past and looked at the Coolidge administration as being a very successful thing to model. Well, it's really exceptional about Coolidge that he did cut government. The government was actually smaller when he left office after 67 months than when he started. Uh, it, so what is that? Today, when people talk about cutting spending, they mean reducing the rate of increase. That's amazing. And it was the result of serious determination on President Coolidge's part. In my book uh, about Coolidge, I talk about all the meetings he had. For When you have a meeting with a congressman or a cabinet member, for that matter, and your president, they usually want something, the, the other party in the room. So how do you say no? You can only really say no if you're well prepared and know why you're saying no. So the president just can't grump out and oh, he has to know why. It's much easier to say yes, uh, particularly when you're underprepared. So if you look at Coolidge's diary, his calendar, what you see is he met with his budget director before cabinet meetings so that he would be better prepared to say no. And say no, he did. He, he vetoed 50 times. He was a real maestro of the so-called pocket veto, which is the killing a law over a holiday during recess um, and that veto uh, kind of requires some some uh, parliamentarian skills which he marshaled and thought about uh, and um, he also made the case for smaller government to the public without apology which is different from today 
Now, what got you into looking at Calvin Coolidge? Because I'll tell you how I started looking at it. It was probably several years ago around President's Day. And on the radio, you're going on and talk about who is the best president, who is the worst president, who is this and that. And I I was born in the 1980s, so Reagan was president when I was born. And I think a lot of people, they have a couple of people they go to, and it's usually a Republican's going to say, well, Ronald Reagan was the best president in my lifetime. And then Democrats will say, well, I was more prosperous under Bill Clinton and balancing the, you know, all, the, all the other stuff that happened in the 1990s. And it, I started looking into, like, who are some of the best and worst presidents going into the, ni- uh, the 1800s as well and some of the Whig Party candidates. And, and looking at Woodrow Wilson as somebody who was – in my opinion, probably the worst president we've ever had when you talk about the military-industrial complex and uh, World War One and uh, dropping the ball in a lot of ways. But Calvin Coolidge, you're coming, you're coming upon a, a time where it was a lot of reversing some of the Woodrow Wilson policies that were happening, and that's how I got into Coolidge. What got you into Calvin Coolidge? Economics, 100%. Um, I wrote a book about the 1930s called Forgotten Man, and... What happened in the 30s? Well, long, long story short, they broke it. That is, the government broke the economy, you know. And uh, so why? what made it unbroken? What made the government and the economy particularly thrive in the 20s before the economy was broken? And the answer is Coolidge policy. So I thought, oh, this guy's really interesting. Who is he and why didn't we learn about him? You know, you said no one talks about Coolidge. One person who did, not always, but frequently enough, was Ronald Reagan. So so that's, uh, he hung a picture of Coolidge in the White House, and he thought about Coolidge when he, he uh, President Reagan, confronted a difficult strike of air traffic controllers, that's known as the PATCO strike, um, and fired the air traffic controllers, even though many of them were nice guys, uh, because there's an inherent conflict in in public sector unionism. Are you serving yourself? Are you serving the people? And when you're in a job where you're protecting the public safety, uh, that's a tough trade-off, and there's a moral hazard with the unionization. And Coolidge himself had a similar conflict to Reagan's air traffic controller conflict with in the Coolidge case, the Boston police in 1919, and just the way the state of Massachusetts worked, the Commonwealth, Coolidge was governor, people reported to people who reported to him, and he fired the policemen in Boston when they went on strike, and they were every bit as compelling as the air traffic controllers. None of these people is evil, right? The, the policemen in Boston needed more money. They were well, they were thoroughly underpaid, and there were rats in their station houses, I'm sure the PACO workers had a great case for raises or whatever they sought. These are serious people, people in the public protection business. But in both cases, there was a moral hazard. And that that was a very, very interesting um, thing to President Reagan. I remember Attorney General Meese told me that Reagan read a Coolidge bio while he was recovering in the hospital from the assassination attempt upon him. It's it's fascinating, and he was not also at the, when reading in your book that he was not one of the when he became vice president under Warren Harding that when he was originally running and throwing his hat in the ring that there was a lot of detractors against him too even in his own party so you kind of see that where not everybody's going to be aligned politically some people are a little more conservative others are more of the 
I don't want to say liberal Republican, but more establishment or neoconservatives that are around. And Coolidge was fighting the same thing that somebody like Donald Trump was fighting just a couple of years ago. He wasn't like Donald Trump, but he was, Coolidge was um, more conservative than many, uh, less conservative than some. The true issue at the 1920 Republican convention where Coolidge eventually uh, won the vice presidential slot was actually Henry Cabot Lodge uh, from Coolidge's own state, senior senator, dean of the Senate, dean of the world, Henry Cabot Lodge, who really opposed Wilson's League of Nations. And instead of, you know, we, how much do we need to talk about that at the 1920 convention? Some, but not a lot. I mean, there were a lot of other things going off and on in the United States and it wasn't clear there needed to be more yelling from Henry Cabot Lodge. He he nonetheless devoted a lot of time, I'm recalling, at that convention to Henry Cabot Lodge and blocking Wilson. Um, and that was sort of airtime misspent. It, eventually, the candidate was Warren Harding of Ohio, uh, a get-along senator, very bright, lovable guy, uh, rather like Bill Clinton, I'd say, liked policy, kind of lovable, kind of uh, sloppy. Um, fun to have dinner with. Uh, it, one reason Warren Harding was picked was this was the period when women were getting the vote and it was perceived that Warren Harding uh, was handsome. I don't know if everyone would subscribe to that today. Anyhow, um, and that women would vote for him. And the number two, well, who would that be? This governor from Massachusetts who had recently stood up to a police union in a time in the United States when uh, public sector unions were rising up everywhere. So Coolidge was symbolic. He'd, he was sort of um, like Scott Walker of Wisconsin, that, that he'd stood up. Um, but he wasn't very well known. Um, so he was a dark horse, uh, certainly for the presidential um, slot. And he had an admirer, Coolidge, named Frank Stearns, who published his essays and kind of built him up, Coolidge's speeches, rather, uh, in, in a book. And Coolidge's speeches were wonderful, but he just wasn't well-known enough to be the presidential candidate that year. Um, and I, I think the Coolidge is kind of expected to get the presidential um, nomination. They didn't, but they graciously ex accepted the vice presidential. And uh, fate and history did the rest. He was a statesman. He was somebody who was very no-nonsense. And you kind of, as we talked about with, with Donald Trump, and but certainly a lot of the cult of personality that we have seen over time with these presidents, where they have to be they have to be above and beyond. They have to really, like, I, I'm talking to you directly, the, the citizen of the United States, you in Nebraska, you're watching me on television, you're listening to me on the radio, we're on a viral video, that I'm talking directly to you. Calvin Coolidge, though, as I, and I didn't know this until I read your book, that he actually was very upfront with the press, and he would go and have a lot of press conferences. And in fact, his set, his inauguration, he was was actually, I believe, the first that was uh, on the radio that was broadcast on radio. Uh, but he was the silent Cal, like he just, you know, again, no nonsense. He was somebody who brought his pen out he and he, he did policy and he did so without making a whole thing of, of it in those days and it just we don't have those kind of politicians right now who put pen to paper and don't really aren't really activists aren't free speech people that they just they just do their job and he was one of the he's one of the very few him and probably William McKinley as well 
Well, yes. I mean, some of this has to do um, with the way the Senate was selected in the olden days before the amendment to the Constitution. So who picks senators before the popular vote did in the states? Well, the senates of the states picked the senator well. Uh, whom did they pick? They picked someone they knew rather well. It wasn't a first impression thing, right? They pick someone they knew. You work with someone in, in your state and you like him in or her. Uh, but anyway, it was him at that point. And you nominate him to be your U.S. senator. And that meant, you know, we always have a very different impression of kids we've been in school with for five years. Uh, you know, often uh, the one we didn't know we would like, we like very much. And the one we thought would be our best friend is not. That's the way the Senate was then. It was made up of people who, who were well known to those who selected them. And therefore, they didn't have to talk so much. And you can't discount that. Coolidge's mentor, I mean, it was part of the culture, the, it, it, a good kind, a good aspect of an old boys club. They knew each other. Um, Coolidge's mentor was Murray Crane of the Crane's Stationery Company. You've heard of Crane's Stationery? So, C-R-A-N-E. The, the Crane Company also printed the U.S. dollar in Western Mass. And Murray Crane didn't talk a lot either. He got picked by his state. He was a senator. He's a great senator. He got a lot done because he wasn't vain. He sacrificed himself to whatever piece of legislation he sought to get through or to block. And uh, that type of person has a hard time getting elected now because of our emphasis on uh, democracy rather than the republic. You know, where we've shifted over more on the continuum from republic to democracy over the years. A democracy favors populist candidates and some first impression candidates. Somebody you saw and you think, wow, they're great. Not somebody you know real well. Uh, so that's what Coolidge came out of, even though, of course, the Constitution had changed by the time he was in the White House. He was still out of a culture where uh, they knew each other uh, and they had a long leisurely period in which to evaluate one another, um, politicians, and that sometimes yielded a better representative. Yeah, that especially in those days that, you know, and you're coming off of you're coming off the the World War One and a lot of things that were happening around that time. And he and I, again, as we've talked about, he really doesn't he gets overlooked nationally and especially nowadays unless you're a scholar unless you're somebody who's really interested gets overlooked and in history books it's uh oh silent cali didn't do much and then uh, all of a sudden it's like that period between world war one and the great depression just seems to get overlooked other than oh it's jay gatsby that's about it that's uh, it seems like what a lot of people feel you know what is it going to take for a lot of people to really understand what he did a as president and you know, you're talking about him basically as soon as he takes office, well, wants to be wants to start cutting taxes and, and putting forth this this great economic policy. But it just it again, when we look to the roaring 20s, which is now 100 years ago now, we're in this decade. What is it going to take for people to kind of go look back in history other than just interviews like these and books like yours that are just going to say, look, this was we need to start modeling our politics nowadays after somebody like Coolidge and less like somebody like an FDR. Well, I think it's less uh, bleak than you imagine, and partly, unfortunately, because news changes. What does it take to elect someone like Reagan or Margaret Thatcher? It takes a fiscal and monetary crisis. And when there is a fiscal or monetary crisis, there was also one, of course, in the um, early 20s um, after the war, 
Well, then people look for a person of character to do the hard thing. And that is what happened. Um, you know, uh, that is what happened in the period. So, so someone like Coolidge, they were glad he was president because they knew he could cut the budget and we had to cut the budget. Why did we have to cut the budget? Because if we did not, England would beat us as a world power our currency would be in jeopardy. And that could happen again. Um, it, it won't always be that the dollar being the currency of reserve will save us. You can see, you know, you see that already with the, the cryptocurrencies. There will be challenges to the dollar. We will need someone who can cut the budget. Um, and uh, then we'll look to Coolidge type people and to study Coolidge in history. How did his own party look at Coolidge? For somebody that by today's standards would be very libertarian, uh, you still had your Rockefeller Republicans as what we kind of have now, the uh, the neoconservatives and the uh, pro-war uh, type of Republicans on that side. How was Coolidge looked up, at upon in his own party? I wouldn't visit the present upon the past, um, but uh, in his own party, Coolidge was looked upon as a surprise because he was just this Massachusetts governor. There was an eminent... Coolidge family at the time, they lived in Boston, and they were also related to Thomas Jefferson. And then Coolidge, who was just a good politician, got to governor, and people said, what Coolidge is this? Because he was from Western Massachusetts, which was not fancy, too. What people in Boston at that time, Western Mass was the frontier. It was not fancy. So there he was, a Westerner with Murray Crane, uh, and the party liked him. Why? I think because they saw he got votes. There's a beautiful dissertation by a guy named John Blair about Coolidge's vote-getting ability uh, up to the gubernatorial level. And he got votes because he cared about people, because he didn't over-promise, and he always... He always under-promised and over-delivered. Again, the more restrained politician. Well, people tend to like you when you do that. Think of used car dealers and the ones you go back to and the ones to whom you do not go back. It's, and then also you have his, his opponents on the Democrat side. What, what, what was, was that contentious or was he, you know, again, when we talk about that he wasn't really as, when we talk about him as silent Cal and not really, uh, you know, blasting the, the, the reporters, or I mean, you going through the press and blasting his opposition, but how did the Democrats look at him? Well, first of all, Coolidge was in the press quite a bit, and he had more press conferences than many presidents. They were just off the record, so they were different. He was far from silent when he felt like it. You know, he just, um, if you look at his speeches, they're also beautiful. They're some of the best written speeches ever. Harding is totally unreadable, and Coolidge is great. Um, but I, about the Democrats, at that time, it wasn't clear who was the progressive party. Was it the Democrats or was it the Republicans? Well, Wilson was progressive. FDR would be progressive, but TR had been a Republican. There were plenty of Republicans who were progressive. The party, in fact, was splitting apart over that. I've heard of La Follette, um, who challenged Coolidge in 1924. Many of his LaFollette supporters came out of the GOP, not the Democratic Party. So nobody knew what any party was. And that is sort of like now. Um, and uh, Coolidge, what happened was Coolidge understood um, the economy well enough to do the right thing for the economy. And enough lawmakers understood the economy well enough that they backed him and before him, Harding. Uh, so Harding had good policy. He was just sloppy. 
So by and large. So um, so there they were. And in the United Kingdom at the same time, um, whatever party was in power, and it wasn't the socialists usually, uh, the, the government was messing up, spending too much, going too close to social democracy. So what mattered was the contrast between two competitors, the U.S. and Britain. And after World War One, well, people thought, well, the U.S. did better and World, came out of World War One stronger. I mean, the poor Britain was in the war much longer. Um, but would it hold the lead? Think of a horse. The U.S. held the lead because we had optimal policy compared to Britain, which was in this some kind of socializing mode even then. And that, well, international currency markets, you know, banking markets, credit markets noticed that and rewarded the U.S. And the U.S. could lower interest rates. And people thought that was great. And that solidified everything about Coolidge. And then you, you talk about some of the other things that were going on, and I think one of the biggest, obviously, tragedies that happened during his, his time was the 1927 uh, flooding of the Mississippi River, and you had, uh, you know, hundreds die, and I think I think I saw the figure was like 600,000 people were left without homes because of it, and as opposed to nowadays or when we've had hurricanes in the Gulf and, and in Florida and different places that you're talking about FEMA and, and rushing for assistance. And Coolidge was somebody that didn't didn't want to deal with the federal government when it came to uh, assistance. Like what was his thinking during that time? Well, um, I think the New York Times said this is not or, or a big paper. So this, you know, a crisis is a bad moment always for federalism. Think of Katrina and President Bush. When there's a crisis, look, people are in trouble. And people, other people are saying, let the states handle it. How reasonable, how stupid, how cruel. So if you want to argue against states' rights, you want to do it in a crisis, health or something else, right? Um, because it's the worst snapshot of state federalism, a crisis situation. The other years, days, hours are pretty good. Federalism looks better than the national government. So anyway, there was such a crisis then, the Katrina of Coolidge, only worse, and it was the great flood of the South, and there was pressure upon Coolidge to sign legislation to spend on infrastructure in Washington, federal spending, and uh, Coolidge thought, well, maybe I don't want to go down there. That's a governor's territory, which is the American tradition to fix up what's in his state. And so he didn't go. He sent Herbert Hoover, the Commerce Secretary, down to the Great Flood of the Mississippi. Very dramatic. I think Coolidge knew that if he went down to the Flood of the Mississippi, his veto of federal spending for infrastructure nationwide would be overridden. And he didn't want that. And he believed that states should take care of their own, by and large, that poor people were best taken care of by their own states, better than the federal government. And there's an argument for that. So then um, this is in a chapter penultimate of my Coolidge bio. And thank you, listeners, for, for um, talking about this now so many years. Then a kind of divine retribution seeming occurred because the lawmakers said, well, Coolidge, what a cold heart. He didn't go to the South. He's heartless. And uh, um, if it were his own neighborhood, he would go, but he can't relate to the South. That's one of the things about him. He's a provincial New Englander. And lo and behold, there was a flood in Vermont where he was born. He was a politician from Massachusetts, but he grew up in Vermont. And it wrecked Vermont. The whole Christmas tree harvest was 
correct. The um, lieutenant governor drowned trying to get in or out of his car. Uh, hundreds of bridges went down. Animals died. Houses went down the river. It was an awful, awful flood. Uh, and Coolidge didn't go to that one either. Consistency. He's, you know, and, and there's a quote in one of the stories about the Vermont flood where a local says, he can't do for his own what he didn't do for others. A lot of people appreciate that. Vermont did recover, and he went back a year later and gave a famous speech called Vermont is a state I love um, because I'm sure it hurt him personally not to go, and, but he thought that if he refused the South, he must also refuse the North. Uh, and, and that... Um, we see we see state politicians acting with such character today. We don't see so many national politicians acting with that character. And then eventually you and we'll wrap it up here in just a couple of minutes. Just got a couple of more questions. Uh, one of them. So eventually he, you know, his his time as president is up, and you kind of we kind of look back at him now and say, what a I think he's a great president and what he was able to accomplish during that time. But there were probably more left wing publications at the time, and you, even to some to some extent today that would say that. His policies, especially as far as the uh, for the tax tax cuts and uh, different other policies with his economics, led to the Great Depression. Uh, it, well, you're again, you're visiting your own current yes. on the past. And there weren't so many left wing publications. The newspapers were generally more center. We have a far worse problem with that. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's one thing. Uh, two, Great Gatsby's false news. When was Great Gatsby actually published? It was published in 1925. That means it can't describe the Great Depression. What it was describing, what Fitzgerald was describing was the Depression of the early 20s, which we know nothing about. That's because it went away pretty fast. Um, so you're right, right, right to emphasize um Gatsby, because that's sort of what high schoolers take away, um, but it, it's really not a good picture of the decade, uh, and that that's important to know. Um, it It is a picture of a, a progressive, lyrical author's vision of 1921, <laughs> which is different. Um, and then the Depression didn't come until after the Coolidge presidency, and it's a little bit of a fallacy post hoc ergo propter post hoc ergo calvin that coolidge caused the great depression it's a real stretch there's no real evidence that he did the the stock market went too high okay well it's doing that right now is that all president biden's fault only you know um and coolidge knew that it was too high he'd seen the stock market go up and down many times in his life and there'd never been any Great Depression that followed. So, so when we, I think it, what the high school teachers tend to do is they want to defend Roosevelt. Roosevelt's actually the polar opposite to Coolidge. They couldn't be, that would be Franklin, couldn't be more different. Um, and so if you want to defend Roosevelt's policy, which is act, 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 you have to trash in some zero, some way, Coolidge policy, since it's the opposite. I, I argue that's silly. You can take something good from a lot of presidents. It's additive. It's not zero sum. And, but that's sort of their logic, and it's a lazy logic. Um, Coolidge is a wonderful model, and, and he's particularly popular among state politicians. And why is that? Because state politicians still have to balance budgets. 
they have municipal bonds to sell, right? They're not like uh, Washington politicians who operate with funny money. Uh, so, so I think he's uh, less unknown than than you might contend, and very much loved. Uh, one of the things we're asking supporters of the Coolidge Foundation to do is to support, help us um, make a movie about Calvin Coolidge. So, if you're interested in supporting that, please do write to the Coolidge Foundation at three four two five Prospect Street Northwest in Washington, D.C. two zero zero seven because. It would be great to have a movie about Calvin Coolidge. I'm talking here about a documentary. There's also a beautiful biopic in the works. Oh, really? I, I keep yeah. trying to think who who I would have to play him. Yeah, but... you have to, why don't you send some suggestions about who would play? Yeah. So, so there you are. But I don't think he's entirely forgotten. Um, and at the Coolidge Foundation, we devote ourselves to informing young people about President Coolidge. They don't have to be Republican. They don't have to love him. He's just informationally a, a good point to have if you're thinking back uh, into American history. And that's why I wanted to do this podcast and wanted to talk to you uh, and, and talk about your book because it really helps propel. Like we, we always look for people we want to tear down, especially those of us in the media, that it seems like the story of somebody's uh, like rise and quick downfall are really good for a headline. But somebody like Coolidge, who Really, when if you want to talk about him being a silent guy, quote unquote, as a president, he really went off the reservation uh, when he when his term was up and passed away a couple of years later. Went back, went to the beaches, and just a very quiet retirement from politics after that. And uh, uh, just he returned to that private life, and it became very private. Even though there was wasn't there a time where uh, after Hoover lost that they were they wanted. Coolidge to run again to to finish out the term because this is prior to you know FDR had four straight uh, um, uh, winning uh, elections that he had four terms and that some were saying well why not Coolidge again and but he was already past that point was he sick by that time too well he had, clearly had something wrong with his cardiovascular um, but also Coolidge believed you shouldn't serve too much. He was like George Washington in that way, so he held back. Um, by the time you get to 32, he, he wasn't feeling too well either, but there you are. Uh, he's, the, the big decision not to run for Coolidge came in 28, and he went to Mount Rushmore in 27, and he had a look at it, and he didn't like what he saw. He doesn't like the grandiose presidency. So... Uh, he didn't want to be as big as a bust. He was more like George Washington, who would have been uncomfortable on Mount Rushmore seeing his head so large. Uh, so he thought the polity was better served by changes, as he put it in his autobiography, which is, I think, the book you're seeing, too. Uh, we have a new edition out of it. It's very beautiful. Coolidge was a great writer. Um, and... Uh, I, I commend it. He wrote it for school children. I hope people will buy Coolidge's autobiography, the one with the baseball on the cover for their kids. And then as in the as we wrap up here, uh, are, is, is there a library where people can go, they can head up to Vermont and be able to check out more information? We hope you do head up to the historic site in Vermont, which is the Coolidge birthplace. It's been lovingly restored, and it's also preserved, so there are no big electric wires. It really feels like the period um, Coolidge grew up when there wasn't electricity yet. And his grave is very humble. It's not taller than uh, his family's, which is amazing because he was a president. 
Um, so when you show your children that, this is Plymouth Notch, Vermont, um, they'll be amazed that a president could have such a humble grave. At the Coolidge Foundation, which is based there and in Washington, uh, we also accept visits. And so does the Forbes Library in Northampton, Mass., which is you know, has much presidential material upstairs. If you ever go to Northampton, be sure to book an appointment because they're not always open. But they have Coolidge's electric horse, which he rode for aerobic. Okay. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to make the trip up to one of these times. I'm going to. I was only in Vermont a little bit, or actually, no, I haven't been to Vermont, just New England in general. But I really want to make a trip up there and uh, and go there. I think it's probably about a from where I'm living right now, maybe about a ten hour drive. But hey, completely worth it to me. But uh, oh yeah, it's particularly on the fourth. We hope you come. Absolutely, Amity. This has been fantastic. It's been very informative. Uh, uh, again, Coolidge. It came out in 2013. I'm sure it's still available. Uh, where can we go for more of uh, your work and checking out whether it's Coolidge related or not? Oh, uh, you know, I think Amazon. I have a new book out about great society, um, and uh, we have the new edition of the Coolidge Autobiography, which the foundation joined with the, the publisher ISI to publish, and it's really good. I, I'll say it again, Coolidge's autobiography is real good. It's the one with him throwing out the baseball on the cover, and he's happy too, which is also contrary to reputation. That's great. Well, hey, thank you so much. This has been great, and I look forward to uh, posting this, and we'll get uh, some good feedback. And hopefully, you know, for people who are history buffs that just haven't gone down this uh, this road of looking at Calvin Coolidge and his presidency and that time in America, they definitely should check that out. And your book is a very, very comprehensive book on him. And thank you again so much. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you for taking the lead on a more Coolidge revival. Absolutely.